This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, as we've been discussing this week, the province is starting to allow visitors in long-term care homes that do not have outbreaks. The homes will allow one outdoor visit of one person per resident each week. The rules for visits in retirement homes are a bit less restrictive. And while some are applauding these guidelines, prominent geriatrician Dr. Nathan Stahl says they are misguided, overly restrictive, prone to abuse, not evidence-based, inequitable, and they stink of ageism. What do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. On the line, we have Dr. Nathan Stahl of Geriatrics and Internal Medicine at Sinai Health. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So tell us what you really think. Well, you know, it, it, it's, uh, you know, we, we are pleased that, you know, there is some progress on this issue. I mean, it's been over 90 days since uh, Ontarians, uh, older adults who live in retirement and nursing homes have been in lockdown. But unfortunately, for many people, this was not the reopening that we had anticipated. I mean, we watched sort of marinas and stables and shooting ranges be reopened a couple weeks ago. And we're left with a document that's uh, very restrictive in terms of the, the visitations that uh, can occur. So you've highlighted, uh, you know, the one visit per week outdoors. The other thing is that it actually requires that visitors attest that they've had a negative swab for COVID-19 in the two weeks prior to coming for a visit. And in the face of an outdoor visit at a distance wearing a mask, we're actually holding visitors to a higher testing standard than we're actually holding the healthcare workers to who are going into the homes and providing direct care. So that onerous and restrictive part is, a, is something that myself and many of my colleagues are not happy with. The other thing is that it really fails the guideline to distinguish between those who are family caregivers who want to get in there to provide direct care to their loved ones as they were doing before the pandemic and those who want to visit for social reasons. I'm not disputing that social visits are important, but there are also skilled caregivers who would be able to step in, fill some of the staffing shortages that are experts in providing care to people who have been locked down in these homes. And the guideline still fails to address that. How are they prone to abuse, these guidelines? Yeah, so what we're worried about is that there's a number of conditions that the home must meet, that they have the policies in place, that they have the personal protective equipment, that they have the staff to support this. At the end of the day, the Premier has made it very clear that it's going to be up to the homes to implement this. And we fear that many of these homes are going to choose the easy route out, um, which would reduce sort of the administrative burden of organizing this, reduce the cost of perhaps extra staff and say they simply don't have the the protocols and policies in place to support visitors and, and keep the homes locked up. And, and that's really our concern here is the power is really in the hands of the homes. Uh, there's not a lot of recourse for uh, caregivers to actually, you know, take this up uh, with homes. And, and at the end of the day, these are just, you know, these are guidelines, which the home has made very clear to me. Some home have made clear to me that uh, they reserve the right to create and implement more conservative policies than what are laid out here. So that's why we're worried about this being prone to abuse. Well, well the, there's, 
I guess, two sides of it. On the one hand, you're talking about family caregivers that could ease some of the burden on the staff in the homes. But on the other, you know, uh, when family uh, and friends and loved ones come in, they see what's going on there. And, and in normal times, that's how a lot of things get fixed. So I guess uh, there are probably still homes that don't want people to see what's going on, right? Yeah, there might be homes that are, you know, want to clean clean up what's what's happened in there, shore things up before they let family caregivers in or uh, visitors. I think probably a lot of it is justifiable fear about, um, you know, how quickly COVID nineteen can ravage a home and and result in significant morbidity and mortality. But I, you know, and I, and so there's no doubt that this is going to be one of the highest stakes places to reopen are going to be nursing and retirement homes. But I think if you're, you know, a reasonable approach was starting outdoors. And I think when you're starting outdoors, the conditions that are being imposed just for outdoor visits are really extreme. I mean, once I do understand the fear about going in the home and, and, and what that can introduce, but outdoors with at a distance with a mask, the risk of transmission is pretty negligible. And the other thing that, um, you know, is quite remarkable here is that particularly for nursing homes, I mean, in Quebec weeks ago, they opened up uh, nursing homes, not for visitors, but for residents to actually go out on walks. And, you know, the residents are still locked in. They can't actually leave the, the property of the home to go out for a walk uh, to maintain their physical function. Um, and, and that's really problematic as well for physical and mental health of the residents. You, you were also talking um uh, in your uh, stream of tweets about how people who do not have that much time left are are being deprived of, you know, human contact and companionship. And your colleague, Dr. Samir Sinha, has, you know, come out and said, you know, people will die of loneliness. Absolutely. And they uh, tragically already have. I mean, for, uh, you know, I would argue, and I think Dr. Sinha would argue, also argue that our response to nursing and retirement homes was too little too late at the beginning of this pandemic. We left them unprotected and, and it wasn't until several, you know, hundreds and now thousands tragically of deaths have occurred, had occurred before we, you know, really locked it down to get things under control. And now for many of these people, as the rest of the province reopens, it's too little too late uh, to actually, you know, reintegrate visitation in a safe and, and phased way. And then, you know, the first step that we've seen is so overly restrictive and, you know, there's been much coverage uh, in the media recently of families that, you know, have not got to say goodbye to their loved ones. Um, and also, notably, about which we haven't talked about yet, about the negative consequences of lockdown. So, you know, like every medical therapy, lockdown has risks and benefits. There are clear benefits in terms of containing COVID-19, reducing the number of deaths. But that's only one metric here. The other thing that's being missed is the collateral damage. Uh, there's cases of people dying of dehydration. There's physical deterioration that's resulting in hip fractures. There's the mental health and emotional consequences here. And we need to create policies uh, that balance both the benefits and the risks of, of lockdown that's being imposed on these individuals. So what should they be doing? What should the rules be? So I think as a, you know, as a first step, what my colleagues and I think several advocates would like to see is Making an important uh, uh, or distinguishing importantly between um, those family caregivers who really want to get in, provide direct care often for several hours a day, and those who are, you know, hoping to visit for social reasons. And again, I'm not minimizing the importance of the latter, but for the former, for these family caregivers, they could easily be trained in infection prevention and control. 
and personal protective equipment procedures, get them into the home, let them provide the care that uh, they want to provide and that their loved one needs right now. Um, that would be, you know, one critically one critical first step that I think was missed uh, in this uh, document. And the other thing I would say is the, you know, with outdoor visits uh, like this, um, I think it's reasonable to, you know, not restrict to, to one visitor uh, like they have, particularly when it's really low risk of transmission if physical distance can be maintained and uh, masks are worn. We've heard from families already that uh, the restrictions that are being applied on these visits, they're just going to stick with window visits because it's going to be much easier. Uh, and I think the, you know, the other thing is this testing requirement. Really? Uh, that yeah. surprises me. Uh, be, what, because they, they don't want to have to go and get tested? They have to go get tested. It's scheduled that, uh, you know, it's scheduled by the home. It's 30 minutes. It's once a week. Um, and, you know, they have to wear a mask. So for many people with cognitive impairment, they may not even recognize them wearing the mask. Uh, and so for many people, you know, or for some families, they've heard that they're just going to stick with the window visit if they're privileged enough to be, you know, at a window that's, uh, you know, ground level or they're, they're outward facing uh, for those who can do that. Because it is very restrictive. If you think about a frail sort of husband or wife or family member of an older adult, to have them go down to a, a COVID-19 testing center, it needs to be on every two weeks. Um you know, it's it's quite a it's quite a burden, and and I'm not really certain why we're holding visitors to a much higher standard than the healthcare workers. Uh, but uh, my understanding was that the health of workers in long term care are getting tested frequently now, or are they not? They they are. They were certainly all swabbed. Um, it's now probably been a month now, but this sort of there's no the serial testing that. Uh, uh, is being required of visitors is, is not the same as it's being required for healthcare workers. Many have many. They ha- there was a deadline by which all uh, healthcare workers in long-term care had to be swabbed, and that that deadline has passed by several weeks now. But this sort of serial frequency, it might make sense to do that. But um, why, you know, why are we holding visitors to a higher standard, particularly when they're maintaining distance, they're wearing masks? It's not like the direct care providers who are actually making physical contact with the residents. Um, that, that's what we were struck by. I am talking to geriatrician Dr. Nathan Stahl about uh, the reopening of long-term care to visitors, also retirement homes, and he thinks that the rules are way too restrictive. I'm going to go to the phones. And Sandra in Burlington, you'd like to go see your mother. Hi. Hi. Love your show, Libby. Thank you. Okay, yesterday I went, I'll keep to this as quick as I can, went for the testing at the hospital. Uh, we require that in order starting Friday, I believe it is, to one person is allowed to visit your loved one at a long term uh, with a mask on. So I get there. When I left, I said, anything you need? They said no. When they made the appointment time for me to come, they did take the health card. So um, then they handed me this information sheet to go and register online with healthrecordsonline.ca. I went on there. I do not own or have a cell phone. Now they are needing selfies. You need to take a selfie of yourself with your health card in order to be able to complete this registration. So then I go back to the one eight three three two two one two two zero zero line with my sense. So then they said, Email my chart at hitsehealth.ca. So I went into that. They came back and said they couldn't help me either. 
because, yes, I did need a cell phone and selfies were required. So from there, I went to um, telehealth, one eight six six seven nine seven and four zeros. They couldn't help me because, yes, you do need photos. So then I thought, okay, so then I go from there to public health. So public health answers, and they can't do anything either. They call, called from a call center. Sa- and- Sandra, Sandra I'm, I'm just uh, clearly uh, there was a lot of red tape because you don't have a cell phone, phone. Doc- Dr. Stahl. Have you heard of such a thing? Does every, does every jurisdiction or every testing center require all of this? I think, you know, I, I, I'm not exactly sure what's going on in this situation, but it seems to me that it, it relates to something about signing up for my chart or to have electronic access to uh, the records after the testing. Certainly getting a test uh, and having public health communicate those results does not require a cell phone. But I think what's being raised here are some of the larger equity issues that we're concerned about with the need for people to have or attest to a negative result in the two weeks prior to a visit. I mean, here's an example of someone not having a cell phone. You could imagine other issues where people have mobility issues that make it difficult to get to a testing center. Um, so I think that's, that's part of the equity issues that we're concerned about in this guideline uh, when they've made it so onerous on visitors just to even get get there for an outdoor distance visit. Um, uh, do you have any suggestions for Sandra to get her to get this done? Uh, I mean, I, again, I'm not entirely certain what the, what the, you know, what, what the barrier is to getting the sort of my chart uh, set up or which uh, healthcare system it's through. I mean, most testing centers um, will, you know, will have uh, public health will be contacted for positive results and follow up with the individual. And again, that's not, that's not a requirement to have a cell phone. I mean, we, people who get tested uh, sometimes do not have homes. Um, so certainly not everyone who's being tested in the province does have a cell phone. And so, uh, you know, the testing center um, should be able to provide uh, Sandra with other ways of contact rather than setting up the electronic my charts as a way to find out her test results. Okay, I, Sandra. I think, I've, I think I've gone seven directions since my chart. And my, my suggestion S- is on this is when you go and get tested, submit your health card so they look at that to see that you are the one that's on the health card let these testing centers submit the information to whoever it should go to, give them your email address so the results can come back to you or a telephone number that you can call. Okay, Sandra, we're, go- we're going to have to uh, mm-hmm. move along here. Good luck with that. At the end of the day, did you get your test? Can you go see your mom? No, I, haven't, I can't go till I have results, and I need paper in hand in order to do that. You actually... You actually do not need paper in hand. They don't have the right to actually see your personal health information. The guideline only states that you have to attest that you've had a negative uh, result in the 14 days prior. They have have, no right to actually see your personal health. We have to show proof of. I've already contacted the home, and we need to come with proof of. Well, then I I would suggest challenging that with the home because we've been through this with another home. They don't actually have the right to see your personal health information for this. And and we followed up with with, the... uh, the ministry about this. There's, yeah, they don't have the right to see your personal health information. It's an attestation that you've had a negative result in the two weeks prior. Okay, I think this uh, shows that there is a, a certain inequitability here. Yeah. Uh, Sandra, uh, we, we we're happy to follow up with you. Thank you. Uh, thanks. I'm going to move along, but okay. thank uh, you so much. The the law or the directive does say attest, which means. 
attest. Thanks for that. Wow. Uh, I mean, you know, there you go. Proof positive of what you've been saying, Dr. Stahl. Let's take a call from Verna in Oakville. Hi, Verna. Oh, hello. Hello. Thank you very much. I didn't think I'd get through. Anyway, yes, I agree with the testing being extremely onerous. I did have a negative test two weeks ago, and now um, the long-term care home where my husband is um, have said it has to be in the last two weeks. So, you know, I'll have to have another one because they're not going to open to visiting until next week at the earliest, and then only once a week. Um, This means I'll have to have a test every two weeks. Um, if for, to yeah. visit once a week, and I've, I'm in isolation anyway. I'm only I'm at home. I mean, you know, I'm not at high risk here, um, and I only had the test two weeks ago because my doctor has to automatically test you before they investigate any other complaints you might have. So my real concern is um, the social distancing part of it. My husband doesn't have Alzheimer. He's he has a complicated um, Louis body type dementia where he is very much aware. He knows everybody. He knows me. He wanders the unit every day calling my name. And he wants, and I have a FaceTime once a week with him. However, he wants a hugging visit. And I have emailed the um, administration at his long-term care home and explained that. And I've explained that I will provide complete PPE as long as we can have a hugging visit because otherwise and it's got to be outside in the garden but otherwise he would have to be physically restrained if he saw me in the flesh because he wants to touch me and he wants to hug me I, I, and, and so you know, you know what I'm I, very I, frustrated I, I can certainly hear that and a, a, you know it, a hug sounds reasonable we're almost out of time so Verna I'm going to let Dr. Stall okay. respond to you. And again, we're going to follow up. So please keep listening and uh, yes. call back. And and Dr. Stahl, um, is that just another problem that you've underscored there? We have about a minute left, a minute and a bit. Yeah, so just, I mean, two things quickly. One, the, the testing that she's outlined, it's nonsensical uh, that she, you know, has to go for these repeated testings that, you know, someone who's isolating lack of symptoms uh, for an outdoor distance visit. And it just shows how onerous this is not just to the healthcare system, but most importantly to Verna herself. The hugging is a little more of a challenge, right? Because once you start, and, and I, you know, this is a tragedy of this whole pandemic and what's going on is that, you know, love and physical contact is being drastically different. But, you know, I think something like hugs, even for me, who's been arguing uh, for something like, like, you know, to open up more than we have, I think we have to see how these outdoor visits go, make those a little less restrictive, remove the testing requirement, see whether there's any increases in cases. I do understand that this is not going to be enough for most people, but the stakes are very high here. I would love to say that everyone could hug and see their, you know, their loved one as they would like to, but we have to do this in a little bit of a phased and graded approach. Yeah. Um, we couldn't even uh, get to the whole question of, of ageism, and and uh, you also asked a very important question. Has anybody asked older adults what they want? We are definitely going to have to revisit this very important topic. Uh, 30 seconds, anything you want to leave us with, Dr. Stahl? No, but I think, I think that's an important point to leave it with, which is that, you know, um, we talked about the collateral damages of this, but we have to think, you know, 
we as as a province and as a society we are opening up we are accepting some incremental risk here and i think older adults most of them would tell you uh, they don't want to die of loneliness and social isolation, and we may need to accept some more risk than we're currently, the guidelines are currently willing to accept to provide some humanity for the residents in these homes who have been in lockdown for over 90 days and for the loved ones who want to see them. Okay. Uh, again, we're going to have to revisit this. And, and thank you, Dr. Stahl, for pointing out all these inconsistencies and problems with the policy that is just going into effect. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Okay. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.